second reading this morning comes from Psalm 25, verses 1 to 10. And David prays and writes here, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O God, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me briefly in prayer. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this morning. And we thank you, Father, for calling us out of our beds and into the gathered worship with your bride here at Christ Community Church. And Lord, we pray, God, as we enter into this season of Lent, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, God. Lord, that as we come to your word, Lord, that you would honor, Lord, our time and worship today, Lord, and open our minds and our ears and our hearts to believe and to hear and to understand what we have read and heard today. And Lord, we pray, God, that our worship of you would be in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning um, with, since we have quite a few new people and guests since our last Lenten season, uh, for those that were unable to join us last week for Sunday school when Connor gave us a wonderful primer on fasting, or for those that were unable to be with us on Ash Wednesday, and again, especially for those that are either new or have never observed the season of Lent before, I would like to offer a brief apology or a primer for the season of Lent before we dive into this psalm. I think this will be helpful. So as we mentioned on Ash Wednesday, when we come to the season of Lent, we observe Lent. We do not celebrate Lent like we do the other seasons. The other seasons are celebratory. This is an observance. We participate in Lent. The word Lent is an old word from the Saxons that just simply means lengthening. And primarily we see this in the lengthening of days as the spring season approaches. So as we make our way through Lent, we will observe that the days are starting to get longer, that the trees are starting to get greener, and we will observe the renewal of creation from its long winter slumber as we draw nearer to the resurrection of Christ. Because that is one of the purposes of Lent. Lent is meant to help us prepare ourselves to join Christ in his wilderness fast for 40 days. It prepares us to join him as he makes his way to the cross. To observe and contemplate the cosmic ramifications of the incarnated word raised up on a cross to bear both the sin of mankind and the wrath of God. And then to celebrate 
his victorious resurrection, which signifies his power over death, his power over our sin, his power over Satan, and his power over hell. Lent is our preparation for Easter. The purpose of Lent is not, I've given you what it is, here's what it is not. Lent is not self-punishment. This is very important. Because Jesus took upon himself all of the punishment necessary for our sins on the cross. We do not have to take on punishment for ourselves. So then we do not observe Lent because we are required to. No one can force you, nor should they try to force you, to enter into Lent. Meaning, you're not required to enter into Lent with us. Rather, we do not gain extra points with God for observing Lent but you are invited into Lent. Lent is our desert. See, in the desert, we become vulnerable. We become vulnerable to nature and and the powers of nature over our bodies, right? Whether that be a desert like the Sahara, right? Or the Judean desert, which is hot. Or Antarctica, which is a desert. And our bodies become vulnerable to the extreme cold, right? In the desert, we become vulnerable, to nature. We also become vulnerable to thirst and starvation in the desert because the desert doesn't have what we need physically. We also become vulnerable to the attack of the enemy in the desert, such as when Christ was in the desert for 40 days or even Israel was in the desert for 40 years. But also simultaneously in the desert, we become vulnerable to God himself. Through the disciplines of fasting, and prayer, and service, and more intense scripture reading, we are able to let down our defenses and give ourselves over to the opportunity to be formed by God, to encounter God, and to grow closer in Christ's likeness. Our time in the desert focuses our minds and our hearts and our spirits and even our bodies on Jesus' suffering because Lent is our desert. Finally then, And this is also very important. The season of Lent is not explicitly Roman Catholic. This is important for us as Protestants. Because Lent finds its roots in the very earliest of the Christian communities dating back to the first century. Which is before the Roman pontiff ever took his seat. (laughs) Unless you were to argue with a Roman Catholic friend, but that's not the point. There is an early church document called the Didache. Or, it has another title called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This document is dated to the earliest, to the 60s AD. This is the same decade in which both Peter and Paul were martyred. So this document started to be written when the apostles were still alive. This document is an early church practice manual that encompasses the teaching of the apostles on how to practice the faith. Chapter 7 of the Didache discusses baptism and fasting. Connor actually read from this chapter last week in Sunday school, but I think it's important for us to consider again on this first Sunday of Lent, so let me read you a selection here. In chapter 7, we read this. It says, Prior to baptism, both the one who is baptizing and the one who is to be baptized should fast, along with any others who are able And be sure that no one who is baptized, or be sure that the one who is baptized fasts for one or two days beforehand. So notice, no one in this early church document 
was forced to fast. But if they were able to, they were invited to share in the fast. This is the origin of the season of Lent. When new converts would present themselves for baptism, they would be discipled. And the church as a whole would join them in their fast to prepare for baptism. Sharing with them in the disciplines of fasting and prayer and preparation so that they might all break their fast on Baptism Sunday by coming to the Lord's table together. So now, if you feel led by God to observe Lent or to enter into Lent, you will be able to enter into a participation of an ancient practice and experience that is tied directly to the earliest of our brothers and sisters in Christ. A practice that is tied directly to the experiences of the people of God from the Exodus to today. And ultimately, one that is tied directly to the practice and experience of Christ Jesus himself as he entered into the Judean wilderness, was tempted by the devil, and then came out of that desert victorious. Turning our attention now to Psalm 25. This psalm is a beautiful text to help us enter into the season of Lent and its spiritual disciplines. There are three things in particular that I believe are worthy of note as we begin our observance of Lent this year that this psalm draws to our attention. And they are, I'll give, you, I'll give them to you up front. They are repentance, instruction, and waiting. Repentance, instruction, and waiting. What we have in Psalm 25 is our reminder that we come before God as sinners, knowing that it is only through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that God can both redeem us and forget our sins. So I want to start in the middle of what's there in your bulletins, starting with the word remember. These are verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 25. David writes here, he says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. It's no coincidence today that the gospel reading in our lectionary is from Mark chapter 1, 9 to 15, which is a text that we have actually already considered together this year. We considered it a few weeks ago in Epiphany. But in verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1, we read this. After John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is, is completed, and the kingdom of God has arrived. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is one of the primary postures of the season of Lent. As we mentioned a moment ago, Jesus has, from the foundations of creation, taken upon himself all of the necessary punishment for our sins on the cross. But repentance is a lifelong posture for the Christian. We rest in the finished work of Christ, knowing that by his death and resurrection, sin's power over us has been defeated, while also knowing that we all still sin and fall short of the glory of God. So you'll notice here in Psalm 25 that repentance is not merely the confession of sins. Now, it is the confession of sins, right? Let's not forget that. A simple definition of repentance is to turn away from sin. But repentance is more than turning away from sin. 
Because repentance has a two-part definition. And the second part is that we turn away from sin and towards God by asking him to remember and to forget. So let's pay attention to the things that Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, asks God to remember and to forget. Here in this psalm, we pray that God will remember his mercy and will remember his steadfast love. But we also pray that God will forget, not just forgive, but forget all of our sins. Now I want to do a little translating here before we go any farther, okay? Because I think this will help us unpack the gravity in these verses. Our English translations don't really do us a lot of favors here. Because I think they miss the depth of what the Hebrew actually says. So here in verse 6 we read, Remember your mercy, O Lord. Our word mercy here is the Hebrew word ramim, which I think is better translated as the word love. Remember your love, O God. Whereas steadfast love is famously the Hebrew word for hesed, or the Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love. This is what David prays at the end of Psalm 23 when he prays, um, sorry, my brain is going blank, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Surely God's hesed will follow me all the days of my life. But this word, I think, is better translated as faithfulness or even loyalty. The phrase from of old, there at the end of verse 6, is better translated as from eternity or even from the foundations of creation. In verse 7, we have a second steadfast love, which I think is better translated again as faithfulness, but it is written here in the emphatic tone, meaning that this steadfast love here is a plea. It's begging God to remember me a sinner according to his loyalty and his love, and not according to my flaky loyalty to him. Finally, goodness at the end of verse 7 is better translated, I think, as beauty or the beauty of the Lord. So now, giving you those definitions and those translations, let me read those two verses again with those different translations in mind. Remember your love, O Yahweh, and your faithfulness, for they have been from eternity. I beg you, please, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. I beg you, please remember me according to your faithfulness, not my lack of faithfulness. O oh, Yahweh, please remember me for the sake of your beauty. Each of these terms are a direct reference to God's faithfulness to his covenant people during the Exodus. The Psalter is littered with calls for Israel to remember the Exodus. Most of the Old Testament is after the Exodus. Remember this, remember this. But notice here in Psalm 25, verses 6 and 7, this is a plea for God to remember the Exodus, not for the people of Israel. Lord, I beg you, remember not the sins of my youth and my transgressions. Rather, remember your faithfulness and loyalty to your people. A church father from the late 300s, his name is Diodor. He was from Tarsus, which is where Saul was from, or Paul, the Apostle Paul. He writes on this, he says, By youthful sins, David is referring to the people's sin in the Exodus, where they committed idolatry. He is saying, remember not those sins, but rather your loving kindness, 
by which you were kind to them in their ignorance and had mercy on them. So now please exercise such care and loving kindness towards me as I repent. To ask God to remember something is to ask him to turn his attention to it in order to act upon it. We saw this very clearly, I think, in the passage that Sierra read from Genesis with Noah coming out of the ark. Notice what God says here. He says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow, and I see the bow in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature. God makes a covenant with creation after the flood. And every time the rainbow is seen in the clouds, he remembers his covenant. To ask God to remember something is to ask him to pay attention to it and then to act upon it. When we repent, what we are doing is we are begging God to turn his attention to us and to act towards us in his love and in his mercy and in his faithfulness, rather than to turn his attention towards us and act towards us according to our sins, which would invoke his wrath and his judgment. When we repent, what we are asking God to do is to remember the cross itself. And this is our prayer of repentance in the desert of Lent. We pray, Heavenly Father, in the completed work of Christ by his death and by his resurrection, pour out your faithfulness up towards us and please forgive and forget our sins. After repentance, though, comes instruction. And just like the Great Commission, disciples are made and then they are taught. They are instructed to follow in the dust of Christ, to obey his teaching and his commands. And here in Psalm 25, we're reminded that it is God alone who can lead us into truth, and that truth is Christ Jesus himself. Verses 4 and 5 ask God to make himself known or to manifest himself in order to teach and to instruct us. This begins with the word make there in your bulletins. It says, make me to know your ways O Yahweh, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. In light of this request, this, the mood of this psalm now starts to shift from confidence in God's forgiveness and faithfulness now to submission to God's instruction, reminding us that our hearts can never be confident in God without also being submissive to God. Because submission to God is also a purpose of Lent. As we pray every week before we come to the table, Lord, your will be done. This is us submitting ourselves to God. And this requires a submissive spirit to divine instruction. Here in these two verses, verses 4 and 5, the submissive spirit is evident by four action verbs. Again, we read one of them twice, make me, teach me, lead me, teach me. As we join Christ in his wilderness fast, as we repent, we are submitting ourselves to his instruction. We are following in his dust and placing our trust and our hopes in him. And a submissive spirit is also, though, it is also accompanied by praise for God and his goodness and his love towards us. Verses 8 through 10, which are the final three sentences of, your, of the text there in your bulletins, helps us to develop these two themes of repentance and instruction. It begins there with good and upright. And David writes, he says, Good and upright is Yahweh, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Christ says, I am the way. He instructs sinners in the way. 
He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness, or with our new definitions in mind or translations in mind, are faithfulness and truth for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. These verses, starting in verse 8, begin with a series of statements praising God's actions towards us, which are characterized here by the qualities of goodness and uprightness, righteousness, faithfulness, truthfulness. As verse 8 notes, these actions of God are revealed for the sake of sinners so that they may repent and be instructed in his way. God is good and upright or morally good and level in the Hebrew. That's what upright would mean. Straight and narrow is maybe another way we would say this. And so as such, because God is morally good and straight and narrow, he instructs sinners. God's goodness means that he will respond in love and faithfulness toward all who repent. And those who receive such a response from God, in turn, verse 9 tells us, become humble. They become teachable. And God, in his goodness and his uprightness and his righteousness, faithfulness and his truthfulness, he teaches his way to humbled sinners. The humble are those who keep his covenant, we read here in verse 10. Meaning that the sinner who repents is then instructed by God and humbled, who then testifies that all of the ways of God are faithful and true for those who keep his covenant. Just to combine verses 4 and 10, again, make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. The paths of the Lord are faithfulness and truth for those who keep his covenant, and his testimonies. Another church father from the 500s, whose name is Cassidorus, I believe, I'm pronouncing this right, he writes here and he says, The Lord is sweet because he still awaits for the conversion of the sinner. And he is righteous because he opposes evil. And he is righteous because he humbles the proud and the wicked so that they may finally become wise and repent. And finally, the psalm reminds us that as the people of God, we are a people who are destined to wait on him. This reminder is really both our application for the week and for the entire season of Lent. We are a people who wait. We wait on the second coming of Christ, but we are also waiting on our own sanctification. We're waiting on our own resurrected and glorified bodies which are no longer corruptible by sin. We are a people who wait on the Lord to act for our salvation and for, our ultimate, and for the ultimate destruction of the enemy. So looking now, starting at the very beginning, we're all over the place in the psalm this morning, but listen, starting here, it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame, and let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day long. This expression here in verse 1 of to lift up my soul appears throughout the Psalter a lot which is oftentimes translated as I desire or I count on or even I set my heart upon. 
So we could easily read this beginning part of the psalm as, to Yahweh I direct my desire, or to God I count on God. During Lent, we focus our attentions more deeply on our need for God. Not only for our eternal salvation, but also for our daily struggles over our flesh and over the enemy. We are a people who wait, counting upon God to intervene on our behalf, which he has done in Christ. For someone to be put to shame, continuing into verse 2, for someone to be put to shame in the ancient mind is for them to be publicly shown to have relied upon a false basis for hope. I've been put to shame because I placed my hope in something that is not good enough to put my hope in. So what David is doing here in the first part of the psalm is begging God to not allow his enemies to be victorious over him because that would bring shame to David. But not only would his victorious enemies bring shame to him, but it would bring shame to God's people. And ultimately, it would even bring shame to the name of God himself. Because in the ancient mind, to be publicly defeated brought shame because your enemy's God was seen as stronger than your God. And so in the ancient mind, if David is publicly shamed, then Yahweh is publicly shamed. So David prays, and he says, Lord, do not let the wicked triumph over me. Or as we see at the end of verse 7, for the sake of your beauty, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord, remember me. Don't forget me. But as verse 3 notes, those who wait on Yahweh shall not be put to shame. This is because Christ has taken upon himself all of our shame. Paul writes to the Galatians, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We wait for God. To wait for God is to set your hope on him and on the completed work of Jesus. Paul will tell the Romans in Romans 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To quote Cassidorus again, he states this, that wait, he states that waiting on God in the midst of suffering is waiting in courageous fashion. And so he writes this, he says, waiting on God in courageous fashion entails expecting him while enduring evil and shame. But while enduring evil and shame, we are to believe and to wait. He says there are two factors that make good Christians. The first is that we believe that God is our Savior. And the second is that we must wait for him in patience all of our lives. So this season of Lent, as we continue in our waiting... Let us wait in a spirit of repentance, begging God to forget our sins, while also remembering his love and faithfulness that have been from eternity. Let us wait in a spirit of submission to his instruction and to his guidance, begging him to make us know his ways and to teach us his paths. And let us praise him for the work that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we join Christ by fasting with him in the wilderness, let us submit to God wholly for his glory and for his beauty and for his goodness.
as David concludes in this prayer of Psalm 25, for the paths of Yahweh are faithful and true for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies.